Amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 6. And I want to share this with you. I will probably confuse a few of you only because I'm going to be reading through the New Living Translation. And the reason I'm doing this is that we're going to be looking at just the temple the temple that was built by Solomon, and he's going to be giving us all the, just the different uh, dimensions and sizes and all that good stuff. And so when you look at the uh, New King James, what we have there is we have it all in cubic feet. And so I figured, you know what, the New Living Translation gives it to us in feet where we can easily read it and understand it. So uh, we're going to do that. We're also going to have quite a bit of slides for you this, uh, this evening, and that way you can get a better understanding of the temple itself. And so with that, why don't we get started here in 1 Kings chapter 6, and we're actually going to go through two chapters uh, as we're going to read the, uh, the, uh, the building of the temple as well as his house that, uh, that Solomon built. So let's go ahead and read beginning in verse one of chapter six, and we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to read the uh, individual verses because, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of this is just diameters and measurements, and, but yet God still has a message for all of us. So let's go ahead and, uh, and begin in verse one. It says, it was mid-spring in the month of Ziv during the fourth year of Solomon's reign that he began to construct the temple of the Lord. And this was 480 years after the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in the land of Egypt. You know, as we see there, we have time frames. And we see here that uh, he begins to build the temple. He begins to construct the temple. It says in the month of Ziv, which is, any, which is between the months of April and May. And so, you know, that's when he begins to build it in his fourth year. And as you can see there, it was uh, 480 years after the people of Israel were delivered there from Egypt, when they were freed from Egypt. And so, uh, let's keep reading. It says, And the temple that King Solomon built for the Lord, as I'm reading through the, N through the NLT, it says, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You know, I'm going to have uh, Mike go ahead and put up just a, uh, a visual of the, of the temple so that you can have a better view and understanding of it as soon as he, uh, he gets it up. There you go. That's the one. Uh, as you can see there, it has just uh, a condensed uh, just uh, uh, copy of it. Uh, but, uh, but these are the measurements, as it says, it's 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So that's the whole temple itself. And then it says there in verse 3, uh, if you could keep it up, keep this up. I'm going to keep speaking to the visual we have there. The entry room of the front of the temple was 30 feet wide, running across the entire width of the temple. And it projected outward 15 feet from the front of the temple. And Solomon also made narrow recessed windows throughout the temple. What we read right now in verses 3 uh, was right here, the, the entrance that he's talking about. Okay, and that's what we have here. And then in verse 4, he talks about the windows. And the reason uh, we have this here, the way the, the, this blueprint is, is as you can see, the top is taken out. I mean, it was all, of course, sealed all around, but so that we can see the, the inside as well as the different uh, parts of the temple, we have, you know, this model that was given to us. And as you can see, oh, as you can see there, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, let's keep reading and, and we'll keep seeing. Uh, we'll, it'll keep revealing to us exactly what was in it. It says there, then he built a complex of rooms against the outer walls of the temple, all around the sides and the rear of the building. So what you have here, this is what he's talking about here. All these rooms that he's building, and they went all around. So it was all around the temple. 
of course, not at the entrance of the temple. And then in verse 6, it says, and the complex was three stories high. We're talking about this, all the rooms that were around, one, two, three. And as you can see there, it says that here in verse 6, it says that the bottom floor being seven and a half feet wide, the second floor nine feet wide, and the top floor ten and a half feet wide. So as you can see, it's narrow here. You can see these right here where the stones were. This made it narrow so that they can put the wooden platform there. So it kept going larger and larger. And so this is the highest one that it says, uh, I, I'm sorry, the widest one that is mentioned here in verse 6. And it says, And the rooms were connected to the walls of the temple, as I mentioned, there by beams resting on the ledges built out from the wall. That's what we're talking about here. So the beams were not inserted into the walls themselves. And then it says, And the stones used in the construction of the temple were finished at the quarry, so there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other iron tool at the building site. Remember, when they were gathering all the stones, what they were doing is they, they did all the cutting so that nothing would have to be cut here. Nothing would have to be hammered together so it just fit perfectly. I mean, just the amazing construction of this was just mind-blowing. But again, the Lord gave them wisdom to construct his temple. And then it says there in verse 8, the entrance of the bottom floor was on the south side of the temple. Okay? And there were winding stairs going up to the second floor and another flight of stairs between the second and third floors. That we can't see here. After completing the temple structure, Solomon put a ceiling of, made of cedar beams and planks. We talked about that last time, how... You know, he had asked uh, the king there to give him just all the, the, uh, the, uh, the cedar that he needed, King Hiram, uh, Hiram of, of Tiger. And then it goes on to say there in uh, verse 10, as already stated, he built a complex of rooms on three sides of the building attached to the temple walls by cedar timbers. Each story of the complex was seven and a half feet wide. Then the Lord gave his message to Solomon concerning this temple. You are building, if you keep all my decrees and regulations and obey all my commands, I will fulfill through you the promise I made your father David. I will live among the Israelites and will never abandon my people Israel. And we're going to talk about this at the end, but let's keep moving on to the interior of the temple. It says, so Solomon finished Building the temple, the entire inside from floor to ceiling was paneled with wood. He paneled the walls and ceilings with cedar, and he used planks of cypress for the floors. And then he goes ahead and partitions off an inner sanctuary. We're talking about this one here. That, of course, is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. At the far end of the temple, it was 30 feet deep and was paneled with cedar from floor to to ceiling and the main room of the temple outside the most holy was 60 feet long talking about this one here so this is one room the most holy place and this is of course uh, uh, the additional room that was there and then it goes on to say cedar paneling completely covered the stone walls throughout the temple and the paneling was covered with carvings of gourds and open flowers. And he prepared the inner sanctuary at the far end of the temple where the Ark of the Lord's Covenant would be placed. As you can see, you can barely see it. I don't know how it looks out there from where you're sitting, but there's the Ark, okay, the Ark of the Covenant. And let me remind you, the Ark of the Covenant was a gold wooden chest with the two tablets, the tablets of the Ten Commandments that were in there. And it says, and this inner sanctuary was 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet high. He overlaid the inside with solid gold. I want you to understand, all of this, even though it had the cedar, it was all overlaid with gold, actual gold. Remember how much gold they took, how much gold they received. They had overlaid it all with gold. That's how amazing, I mean, that's why when 
when they came, right, when, when uh, the Babylonians came and they saw all this gold, they said, you know what, we're, break, we're burning this down because they wanted the gold for themselves. They knew the value that was here. And then Solomon, as it says there in verse 21, overlaid the rest of the temple's interior with solid gold and he made gold chains to protect the entrance to the most holy place. So we're talking about here again, the most holy place. So he finished overlaying the entire temple with gold, including the altar that belonged to the most holy place. And then it says there that he made two cherubim, a wild olive wood, each 15 feet tall, and placed them in the inner sanctuary. These are the two cherubim here. And remember, the reason why there's cherubim is because when you look at the throne room of God, according to the word of God, it reveals to us that there's cherubim angels. There's these living creatures that are in there, and they're amazing looking. And they're there in the throne room of God. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5, as well as in Revelations chapter 4, verse 6. You see these cherubim angels that are there in the throne room of God. And so here again, this is just a duplicate of the throne room of God. And so we have this, right? Of course, it's going to look much more beautiful, but this is as close as, as it can possibly get from a human perspective. And so verse 22 says, so he, I'm sorry, well, let me read it again. So it says, so he finished overlaying the entire temple with gold, including the altar that belonged to the most holy place. Verse 23, he made two cherubim of wild olive wood, each 15 feet tall, and placed them in the inner sanctuary. The wide span of the cherubim was 15 feet. That's 15 feet high, each wing being seven and a half feet long. Imagine that. And the two cherubim were identified in shape and size. Each was 15 feet tall. And he placed them side by side in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Their outspread wings reached from wall to wall. You can see that here. While their inner wings touched at the center of the room. And he overlaid the two cherubim with gold. And he decorated all the walls of the inner sanctuary and the main room with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He's talking about all this in the back, all the walls. He overlaid the floor in both rooms with gold. So everything had gold in it. And for the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made double doors. You can see two of them here. And these double doors were decorated with carvings, again, of cherubim, the angels, of palm trees, and as we talked about before, when it comes to palm trees, what do palm trees symbolize? Victory, that's right. Remember, palm trees are a sign of victory. I don't know if you knew that, but again, the reminder of that, and as I mentioned to you before, you know what, when we're in the throne room of God, guess what we're holding in our hands? As we praise the Lord, we are holding palm trees. In heaven, that's an amazing sight. So, so we have this here again. We have the palm trees were overlaid with gold. Then he made four-sided doorposts of wild olive wood for the entrance of the temple. Okay? And then he goes on to say, And there were two folding doors of cypress wood, and each door was hinged to fold back, as it's, as it's there, upon itself and these doors were decorated with carvings of cherubim palm trees and open flowers all overlaid evenly with gold and the walls of the inner courtyard were built so that there was one layer of cedar beams between every three layers of finished stone the foundation of the lord's temple was laid in mid-spring in the month of ziv again uh, april may during the fourth year of solomon's reign so the entire building was completed in every detail by mid-autumn in the month of Bull, which was actually October and November, during the 11th year of his reign. So it took seven years to build the temple. So imagine that it took seven years to build this temple. And so let's move on to chapter 7. So it says, And Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him 13 years to complete the construction. I want you to, I want, uh, Mike, if you could put up that other, that other uh, image that we have there with the, uh, with the palace and the house. No, the other one, the next one. There, there's another, 
there's an there you go. Okay. Is there any way? Okay, that'll work. Um, okay, we mentioned the temple here. That was that image that we have here. And so what Solomon did is he connected the actual temple, as you can see there, to his house. And this is what we have here. And let's read about the house. It says there, one of Solomon's buildings were called the palace of the forest of Lebanon. We have this here. Again, we're looking from, from top to bottom, so you don't have a roof on there. But as you can see there, that's, that's what it is there. It's, it's basically the house of the forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long. So 150 feet, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. And there were four rows of cedar pillars and great cedar beams rested on the pillar. The hall had a cedar roof above the beams on the pillars were 45 side rooms. Okay, so they had 45 side rooms arranged in three tiers of 15 each, as you can see there. One on each end of the long hall were three rows of windows facing each other. All the doorways and the doorposts had rectangular frames and were arranged in sets of three facing each other. There we, and then it says there that Solomon also built the hall of pillars. So we have that here. This is the hall of pillars, which was 75 feet long. So, I mean, this was 150 feet. That's a little shrunk in there, but that was half of that. So it's actually, it actually is longer than the way it appears there on the screen. And 45 feet wide. So we can see there, again, it's uh, 45 feet, uh, feet wide. And so this way here. And then uh, it goes on to say there was a porch in front along with a canopy supported by pillars. Okay, so we're talking about here. And then Solomon also built a throne room as a hall of justice. Here's the hall of justice. Or the hall of, as it says, or the, the hall of the throne. And this is where he heard basically legal matters. And so anytime someone came in for any type of direction, any of his wisdom, then this is where he would, he would speak to them. And remember when the uh, Queen of Sheba came and spoke to Solomon and she was just amazed at the wisdom that he had? Well, guess where she went? She went there. And that's where he spoke to her. And Solom, Solomon's living quarters surrounded a courtyard. So this is where his living quarters were. And there's a courtyard behind his hall. And they were constructed the same way. He also built similar living quarters for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married. Remember his first wife? His first wife was actually not even a Jew. And we know what ended up happening to Solomon, right? He ended up marrying all of these these. Uh, these women that uh, basically by the end of his life, he had married, a th he had actually 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he had a thousand women and we know what these women did to him, right? They led him away from the Lord. And then it goes on to say, it says, from the foundation to eaves, all these buildings were built from huge blocks of high quality stone, cut with saws and trimmed to exact measure on all size, sides. Some of the huge foundation stones were 15 feet long, and some were 12 feet long. The blocks of high-quality stone used in the walls were also cut to measure, and cedar beams were also used. The walls of the great courtyard were built so that there was one layer of cedar beams between every three layers of finished stone, just like the walls of the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple with its entry room. If we could go back to that comparison of the, of the temple with the palace that Solomon built for himself. As you can see here, here's a good comparison of how many years it took to build the temple versus the palace as well as others. Seven years to build the temple, 13 years to build his house. Some people may say, well, did he not, why didn't he put so much time into his house? And why was there so much time into, I mean, why did he not put so much time into the temple, but yet he put 13 years into the palace? One of the reasons is, is that his palace was a lot larger. Remember, it was 150 feet versus, you know, the, the, the 30 feet of the temple. And so 
you know, it took a lot. And plus over here, it was all with gold and this is just with stone. So, uh, you know, the, and everything was pre-cut for the temple. The palace was not. So as we can see there, uh, built according to God's specifications, the palace had no specifications from, from God. Oh, the dimensions of the temple were 90 feet long. I apologize, I gave you a 30 feet. 30 feet wide it was and 45 feet high versus the dimensions of the palace were 150 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. So you can see it's a lot larger. And it constructed with blocks dressed at, at, at quarry, constructed with blocks of high-grade stone. No iron tools were used at the temple building site. Stone cut and trimmed to size. Narrow windows placed high, windows placed high in sets of three. Inner courtyard surrounded by wall, dressed stone, and trim cedar beams. Great courtyard uh, surrounded by walls, dressed stone, and trimmed cedar beams. And then the floors made of juniper covered in gold. Whole interior covered with, with cedar and overlaid with gold. And throne hall covered from floor to ceiling with cedar. So there wasn't gold in the palace. And so, as we keep reading, let's go to verse 13. It says here, King Solomon then asked for a man named Huram to come from Tiger. And he was half Israelite since his mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father had been a craftsman in bronze from Tiger. Huram was extremely skillful and talented in any work in bronze. And he came to do all the metal work for King Solomon. Okay, and so... Let's read what he did. And Huram cast two bronze pillars, each 27 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. Mike, if you could put up the pillars. And let me share with you. You know, go back to the temple that we had, to the original temple. The first screen that we had. I want you to see, this is what we're going to be talking about now. You see how everything was here overlaid with gold? Everything was gold, overlaid with gold, stone outside. But then he's going to start talking about all these things made out of bronze. You can see it has that bronze look there. We're going to look at this pillar. Look at the size of this pillar as we read there in verse 15. It says that each were 27 feet tall. Imagine that, 27 feet tall. And 18 feet in circumference, the size of this pillar was amazing. And if you go back to the, to the pillars, the screen of the pillars, okay, as we can see here, these are the two pillars that we're talking about, those that were there in the temple, at the entrance of the temple. It says, for the tops of the pillars, he cast bronze capitals. So as you can see here, we're talking about here. We're talking about these things here, okay? And... As you can see there, it says that it was, it was uh, seven and a half feet tall. Each capital was decorated with seven sets of lattice work and interwoven chains. This is what we're talking about, these right here. Okay? And he also encircled La Latisse with two rows of pomegranate. We're ha right here are the pomegranates. Okay? To decorate the capitals over the pillars. The capitals on the columns inside the entry room were shaped like water lilies. We're talking about these here, water lilies. And they were six feet tall. Imagine the size of that. That's six feet tall. This is incredible. The capitals on the two pillars had 200 pomegranates in two rows among them, besides around its surface next to the lattice work, okay? Huram set the pillars at the entrance of the temple, one towards the south and one towards the north. And he named the one on the south Jachin and the one on the north, Boaz. As you can see, the one on the north, Boaz, and that means in him is strength. And as you can see, Jachin, that means that he shall be or he shall establish. And so the capitals on the pillars were shaped like water lilies and the work on the pillars was finished. Then Huram cast a great round basin 15 feet across from rim to rim called the Molten Sea. Let's go back to the original, original, this, uh, uh, there we go. Now we're talking about this, okay? This is what we're talking about now. 
Look at the size of this thing. It is 15 feet across from rim to rim. And this is made out of bronze. Remember, it's all bronze. And that was called the molten sea. And the reason this was, what was this used for? This was actually used for water so that they can cleanse themselves, so that they can uh, uh, use clean water after, well, we'll talk about that. But this was always to clean their hands and, and, uh, and then to fill these with water. So uh, it says it was encircled just below its rim by two rows of decorative gourds. We can see that there. There were about six gourds per foot all the way around, and they were cast as part of the basin. The sea was placed on a base of 12 bronze oxen. So all these are oxen. They're made out of bronze. These are not real oxen. Remember that? They're actually bronze oxen. Can you believe that? And they're the ones that are holding up this water basin. And then it goes on to say, And the three oxen faced north, three faced west, three faced south, and three faced east, and the sea rested on them. And the walls of the sea were about three inches thick. Okay? Imagine that. And its rim flared out out like a cup and resembled a water lily blossom it could hold about 11,000 gallons of water imagine how much water that can hold and then it says in verse 27 Huram was also made 10 bronze water carts one two three four five you could see on the other side the other had another five one and you know another five on that side and then it said here and each of the water carts were six feet long, six feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. So the size of these things, they're not small. Six feet long, six feet wide. The height, of course, was not very tall, four and a half feet. And they were constructed with side panels braced with crossbars. Both the panels and the crossbars were decorated with carved lions, oxen, and cherubim. So this is all that's carved in there. We can't see it. The details are, of course, there, though. Each of these carts had four bronze wheels and bronze axles. They were supporting the posts of the bronze basins at the corners of the carts. These supported were decorated on each side with carvings of wreaths. The top of each cart had rounded frame for the basin. It projected one and a half feet above the cart's top like a round pedestal, and its opening was two and a half feet across. It was decorated on the outside with carvings of wreaths. And the panels of the carts were squared, not round. Under the panels were four wheels that were connected to axles that had been cast as one unit with the cart. The wheels were about two and a half feet in diameter and were similar to chariot wheels. And the axles, sports, spokes, rims, and hubs were all cast from molten bronze. So you can imagine this thing, right? And what would they do with these things is this is how they would cleanse the sacrifices that were given. Remember, this is... Right here, the altar of sacrifice. So, so this, is ex uh, this is what they would do. They would clean the animals there, and, and, uh, and that's where they would, uh, of course, offering, offer them up to the Lord. It says that there were handles at each of the four corners of the carts, and these two were cast as one unit with the cart. Around the top of each cart was a rim nine inches wide. The corner supports and side panels were cast as one unit with cart. Carvings of cherubim, lions, and palm trees decorated the panels and corner supports wherever there was room and there were reefs all around them. All ten water carts, remember five on each side, were the same size and were made alike for each was cast from the same mold. Huram also made ten smaller bronze basins, one for each cart. Each basin was six feet across and could hold 220 gallons of water. So these things could hold 220 gallons of water. He said five water carts on the south side of the temple and five on the north side. The great bronze basin called the sea was placed near the south, southeast of the corner. As you can see, it's right here. Was placed near the southeast corner of the temple. And he also made the necessary wash basins, shovels, and bowls. So at last, Huran completed everything King Solomon had assigned him to make for the temple of the Lord. The two pillars, remember, bronze the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two networks of interwoven chains that, chains that decorated the capitals of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates that hung from the chains on the capitals, two rows of pomegranates from each of the chain networks that decorated the capitals on top of the pillars, 
the ten water carts holding the ten basins, the sea, the molten sea there, and the twelve oxen under it, the ash buckets and shovels and the bowls. And Huram made all these things of burnished bronze for the temple of the Lord, just as King Solomon had directed. The king had them cast in clay molds in the Jordan Valley between Sukkoth and Zerenthon. Solomon did not weigh all these things because there were so many, the weight of the bronze could not be measured. Imagine that. The weight of the bronze could not be measured. And Solomon also made all the furnishings of the temple, the gold, the gold altar, as we have here, the gold table of bread, as we have here, of the presents. It says there are the lampstands here. There weren't just one that was in the tabernacle here. They actually made uh, five on the south row and five on the north row in front of the most holy place. The flower dec uh, decorations, lamps, and thongs of all gold. The small bowls, lamps, snuffers, bowls, dishes, and incense burners, all of solid gold. The doors of the entrance, the doors of the entrance of the most holy place, I'm sorry, right here. And the main room of the temple with their, front, with their fronts overlaid with gold. So King so uh, Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts to his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the various articles, and he stored them in the treasures of the Lord's temple. You know, as we talk about David, you know, as we, you know, I just wanted you to see the temple because if I would have read it to you, there's no way that you could have had a true understanding as to what he built here. This magnificent temple just overlaid with gold. And I mean, just the amount of money that would have been put in there, you know what, over the top. I mean, I, I just, it's just amazing what was built there. But again, you know what, he was extremely rich. The Lord just brought riches and riches and even David had accumulated riches and he had dedicated even his own personal money for the temple that would be built by his son. What I want to talk about now and I want to share something that's going to just blow your mind. And, and again, as we look at this, right, as we think about where the Lord built this temple as well as who built the temple. You know, when we look at David, as we finished here with David, what were David's two most notable sins? Anybody want to? Okay, yeah, that's right. It was adultery, murder. Remember with Bathsheba and Uriah. He murdered her husband and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then the second one was counting the people, the senses of the people. Remember, David began to had this pride within him, right? He began to, you know, he was moved, as it says there, by the devil himself to number the people. And of course, the people were not to be numbered. Only God could call a census and God did not call the census. And so David, of course, you know, at this time, he was swelling up in his heart, becoming prideful. And so we have the sin with Bathsheba and then we have the census. I want to talk about both these sins. I want you to see God's grace through all of this because every single one of us, we are sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us are sinners, right? The Bible says that and we can all admit to that. But when we look at what we have here, when we look at God's grace and what he did here with this temple, I want you to know one thing. When we look at the son that David and Bathsheba had, his name was Solomon, right? Remember, David sinned with Solomon. And they had, I mean, David sinned with Bathsheba and they had Solomon. Solomon is the one that built the temple. Again, this reveals the grace of God. You know, this sin that was committed. And we know that this sin that was committed, it, it brought a lot of pain to the family of David. Understand this. Remember, there were three sons that were killed because of that sin as well as one of his daughters was raped by her brother. So there was a lot of pain that this sin brought upon the family of David and David himself. But through David and Bathsheba, they had this son Solomon, and he was the one that built the temple. 
Let me share something else with you, and this is going to blow your mind. When we look at the census of the people, when David took a census, the Lord told him, you know what? You need to build an altar. And you need to do, you know what, again, burnt offerings. You need to do peace offerings. And when you do these offerings, the plague will stop. And by this time, there were 70,000 that were killed. 70,000 people that were killed because of the census. And so David had to buy this property. And this is what's so amazing. David brought, bought this property. And he had to buy this property from this gentleman that was named Arana. Okay? And Arana had this threshing floor. And this threshing floor that Arana had, it was there in Mount Moriah. Okay? Do you know where Solomon's temple was built? It was built on Mount Moriah. When you think of the man that he chose to build the temple was Solomon after their sin. And then the place that he built the temple was where David committed or, or where David bought the property to end the murder of the people of Israel. You know, we see this and we think to ourselves, the two notable, most notable sins of David ushered in the grace of God. And as I think about this, right, you think to yourself, you know, these sins, they caused a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. They caused a lot of damage. But what does the word say about sin and grace? In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But as we hear this, right, does this actually give us a right to sin? Let's think about this, right? If we know that grace will abound where sin abounds, does this say or give us the right to sin? Romans 6, verse 1 and 2 says, What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he goes on to say, certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? You know, as we think about this, right, God's grace moved powerfully in these two locations where, or the, in these two incidents where sin was done. But I want to also talk about this because I mentioned to you that we would come back to these verses here. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, it says, Concerning this temple, you are building if you keep all my decrees, regulations, and obey all my commands. I will fulfill through you the promise I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and will never abandon my people Israel. See, when we look at God's promises, God's promises to Solomon were conditional. And I want us to remember one thing too. When it comes to us, his promises to us and every single one of us can also be conditional. And what do I mean by this? Because when we look at the word of God, the word of God tells us that, yes, where sin abounds, grace abounds. But the word of God also tells us that if we practice sin, Then his promise to us when it came to salvation that he gave us doesn't continue. Because, see, we chose to no longer walk and to no longer abide in Christ. See, as we think about this, right, I want you to understand one thing is that according to Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, it says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. 
See, the Bible talks, I want you to understand this, the Bible talks about us not losing our salvation, but walking away from our salvation. And we walk away from our salvation when we decide to practice sin, when we decide to, again, walk according to deceitful lust. And, and of course, as we continue to, as he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, when we, you know, when we allow the flesh to, to overtake us, when we allow the cares of this world or the enemy to, to come and to begin to tempt us, and then we begin to fall into you know, his temptation, and we begin to do the things that, that are contrary to the word of God. See, God told Solomon this, to walk in his statutes, to execute my judgments, to keep all my commandments, and to walk in them. Did Solomon do this? You know, at the end of his life, he walked away, didn't he? The Bible tells us that, you know what, that he no longer obeyed. You know, and some people may argue, well, you know what, but, but God's word says that, you know what, that if he chose us from the foundations of the world, then we're secure in our salvation. Well, the Bible also says that we have a choice. Are we going to walk away from it or are we going to continue in it? There are many, the Bible, uh, you know, as Paul wrote, many times he quotes her and is his letters to Timothy as well as his other letters that, that people strayed from the faith. How could they stray from the faith if they weren't in the faith? And so as we look at this, right, as we look at Solomon, you know what? Solomon decided to not keep all the decrees, not keep all his commandments, his statutes, his judgments. For us, you know what? When we look at the law, are we bound by the law? We are not bound by the law. I want you to know that. But we are called to walk in holiness and righteousness. And how do we walk in holiness and righteousness? When we yield to the Spirit of God, right? See, the Spirit of God was given to us, right? So that we can have power over sin. He was given to us as a guarantee, as a promise of our salvation. But do we yield to the Spirit? When it comes to obeying the Word of God, I want to just talk quickly about this. Why do we obey the Word of God? Why do we obey the commands of God? It comes down to one word, and it comes down to love. Remember that. It's all about love. In John 14, 15, Jesus said this. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me. See, we show the Lord that we love him by keeping his commandments. When we decide to walk away from walking in these commandments and we decide to practice sin, then are we showing the Lord that we love him? I don't think we show the Lord that we love him. Because we love other things, right? See, Jesus himself said that the law was summarized in love. As he told us in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 39, he said, You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, when Jesus said that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all your mind, as we know, Mark adds the word strength there. See, what happens many times for Christians and for others is that we decide to have other gods before him, don't we? Other gods come in the form of self, don't they? We begin to worship ourselves. We idolize ourselves. Money, you know, we... Love money so much. And God's word says that we can't love God and money. And when we love money, we go astray, right? We begin to do things that we shouldn't be doing because of the greed, because of the love that we have for money. You know, when we look at our spouses or our significant others, some of us that have are dating somebody or 
you tend to idolize them sometimes, don't you? And you begin to treat them like a God and they become your God and you no longer place the Lord as, as your God. And the same thing with children. How many people put their children and they idolize their children and because they idolize their children, they begin to sin and put their children as a priority over all things. And we also know that there's possessions that are out there, right? That people begin to idolize possessions and they live for possessions. And we know one thing that possessions aren't a bad thing, but when they begin to possess your heart, they are a bad thing. When you're just thinking about these things. See, the Lord wants us to fear him. See, the word of God tells us that the fear of the Lord begins with wisdom and the fear of the Lord hates evil. And it's important that we understand these things as we are called to honor him. We are called to love his word. We are called to seek his fellowship. Remember, the law is summarized, loving God and loving your neighbors. What about our neighbors? Can you love the, your neighbors as yourself? When we think about loving our neighbors, are we able to forgive our neighbors? Think about that. Can you forgive your neighbor? See, if we're not forgiving our neighbor, then there's going to be some real pain in our lives. God tells us in his word that he sends the torturers out to us. Imagine that. We open the door for the enemy to come into our lives when we don't forgive others because we have bitterness. You know, forgiving others is key, right? We, you know, we want to be forgiven by others, right? We want to be forgiven by God. What about Lying about our neighbors, lying about others, lying about those people that we know. How about being envy or jealous about somebody, right? Our neighbors, when we're envy or jealous about them, I mean, are we truly loving the Lord, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves? The same thing, it comes with hate. You know, when we say we're, we don't like somebody, we hate somebody, it's, it's the same thing. We're not loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. When we gossip or talk about them, that all has to do with our neighbors, See, for every single one of us, if we want to be clean, we can't be doing these things. See, how many of us as, as Christians, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but I just want you to think about how many of us want to be filled by the Spirit of God? How many of us want to overflow the Lord? But when we're not loving God, and when we're not loving our neighbors, he can't fill us. He can't overflow us. He can't do this because we're dirty. On the outside, we may look good, but on the inside, we're dirty. We talked about this, right? We, you know, as he told the Pharisees, you know what? You guys on the outside look good, but on the inside, you're dirty. You're like those whitewashed tombs, right, that we used to clean for the outside, but on the inside, there's dirty bones there. There's dead bones. See, for us to be filled by God and to allow God to move powerfully through us, we got to be clean on the inside. There's no other way to do it. We got to be clean on the inside. And that really comes down to a choice. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to choose to be clean? Or are we going to choose to do these other things? Are we going to choose to continue to walk in our former conduct? Growing corrupt with deceitful lust? Are we going to put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness? You know, I know that God wants to do something. He wants to do something through all of us. 
And for him to do something, it comes down to one thing. As the Lord said, loving him and loving our neighbors. If there's a dryness in, in you, if there's a, a lack of zeal, examine yourselves. Is there somebody that's taken the place of God? And secondly, am I loving my neighbor the way I should love him? Am I helping my neighbors? Am I reaching out to them? You know, it all comes down to a choice. What are we going to do? When we look here at Solomon, we saw his choice. His choice, he started off strong, but he, he didn't finish strong. And I want to share this with you. It's not how you finish, but it's, it's not how you start, but how you finish. You know, many of us have messed up. Many of us have made choices we shouldn't be doing. And what I love about the Lord is he's always willing to give another chance. This is the God that we serve. This is the grace that I'm talking about. When you say, you know what, Lord, I, I have messed up. And you know what, Lord, I am going to make you a priority. And you know what, Lord, I am going to love my neighbor the way I love myself. And I'm going to change my perspective. And I'm going to change my attitude. And when you do that, God will move through you no matter what you've done in your past. He will move powerfully through you. He will do a mighty work through us. He will do miracles through us, as his word says. That he desires to show his strength through hearts that are loyal to him. Through hearts that are loyal to him. Who are you loyal to? Let's pray.